Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Borer. If I sound weird, that's because uh, it's almost 6am right now, and this is a 8th recording of this episode. It's just that I had to re-record every time something new popped out, and uh, I have quite a lot to tell you this time. See, one of these things kind of tied into the past of everything, because I've been making this podcast for so long that... It's hard to remember that stuff happened before the war even began, right? But some of it hits me hard. And again, I'm, I'm really sorry about my voice. It's just that I haven't slept all night and uh, really want to launch this. Because once I go to sleep, then, uh, then I won't be able to record for another few days. So I just had to do it. So I'll just start with the fact that um, kept me up all night. See, those of you who... Um, who've been listening to me for a while now, might remember that back in 2018 when I went to Donbass for my first time ever, one of the people whom I had been studying from, a war correspondent, Alexander Rastorguyev, was killed, together with um, Orhan Jamal and Kirill Radchenko. These were guys from um, Echo of Moscow, the radio station that's now closed. They were killed in Central African Republic. They were going there to basically do more investigations on our good friends Wagner group. Well, as I was recording my episode, it turns out that um, Russian mass media just announced the death of one Kirill Romanovsky. He was an employee in Ria Fan. That's a news service in Russia. Which, just like... Wagner Group is owned by Yevgeny Prigozhin. You know, not suspicious. And Romanovsky was the guy who was responsible for the deaths of these journalists. Romanovsky was their contact, their security person, and he was the person that got them into their, um, their ambush. He gave the contacts of the non-existent fixer, Martin, And the journalists were killed when they were on their way to meet this said Martin in the town of Bambari. And then afterwards, of course, Romanovsky lied about everything and denied that he knew knew anything. You know, the usual. 
And, um, well, one of the investigative agencies in Russia, the still independent ones, sent her a dossier. Yeah, you know, uh, they had been asking time and time again for the general pro- general procurator's office to, you know, bring Ro- Romanovsky up on questioning because this was murder. And, uh, yeah. He never responded, never did anything. Um, and apparently, well, he's dead now. And this is kind of another Prigozhin's thing. Now, I don't know if this Romanovsky guy fell out of a window. You know, might be the usual. But uh, we can clearly see a tendency here because another story that I want to tell you about is that how earlier this month another co-worker of Prigozhin, the, the chief of the Russian culture house in the Central African Republic, Dmitry Siti, was almost killed. On his name, a random package had arrived in um, this, you know, sort of consulate. And uh, as soon as he opened it, an explosion happened. Siti got, well, heavy injuries and was hospitalized. He's also involved into this murder of the journalists. It's interesting how, you know, amidst all this chaos, well, some patterns emerge. Now, I can't really tell you about the other murders, but um, right now I have two random incidents on my hands, and another one if you count the brutal sledgehammer murder, where Prigozhin is involved. Just to document the cases of totally random violence as to serve as an answer to those who, you know, wonder how life under Putin might look like. Meanwhile, in the other news, well, Makiv situation continues, since everyone's super afraid of January the 5th mobilization, which is probably going to happen. You know, just like last time, probably going to be a week or two late, since... Um, Putin hates to show that other countries' intelligence agencies have been correct. So just like the beginning of the war was moved from the 16th to 24th, you know, this time, since the whole mobilization was announced by the Ukrainian Minister of Interior, it's going to get moved. So, you know, somewhere in two weeks, people are going to get mobilized again. Russian media sites are just full with all sorts of requests and uh, announcements stating that people should just move away as soon as possible. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot to be worried about. And this is this is my central point here. See, uh, I rewatched all this New Year's speech with Putin and everything. You might have seen the videos and a lot of people in the West, in the Twitter, you know, pay attention to how, um, how the military personnel was faked and this this one lady that repeats all the time but the whole fact is that this is another thing that i thought i didn't have to speak about but uh, apparently i do because no one else has mentioned it to me it was quite obvious but um hey if you remember a while ago i on my show i mentioned how putin has been trying to distance himself from the war how it's Shoigu's fault, how everyone is at fault, and how everyone should ask for any questions to, well, your local conscription service and all that whatnot. 
this whole thing that he gave a speech with um, with military personnel, even though it was a fake one, shows a turning point, I think. Well, this is obviously speculation of my part, but um, this kind of shows that he's chosen to finally take some responsibility. Not because he wanted to, not because he really is worried about winning in three days, oh no. This kind of shows that he's been driven into a corner, so to speak. At this point, Putin's kind of aware, I suppose, that um, if he loses this, then he's out. That he doesn't want to do that. And again, another reason while I was re-recording all the situation. See, Solovyov recently, on public news, and I quote Solovyov here because he's the most central of all the propaganda. I mean, Solovyov lacks any sentient thought of his own. He just isn't capable of independent thinking, you know, if he's not completely paid for it. So what comes out of his mouth is official Kremlin's opinion. And in his recent episode, he basically stated that, um, and I quote here, human lives are overrated. Quote, we're all going to die anyways, so what's the point of worrying about it? We shouldn't be afraid of it. And then he made some racist remarks about the West, and uh, yeah, Th- those are when I'm going to be a guest on someone else's show, because uh, yeah, uh, I'll just mention that black people were involved again, because obviously uh, they just pull out black people whenever NATO was involved or something. And uh, yeah, it's, it's getting very, very real. I... I I have this feeling, like I said, this is not based on facts, but I have this feeling that Putin's understood something and that Putin's finally gotten his hands on maybe some real data. Because this whole public action, taking responsibility on on himself by showing himself to the military people, well, that's an important step. He kind of, you know, puts the scapegoats away. And he needs to as well, since, well, uh, the official announcement of the Ministry of Defense about the Makiyevka, which I mentioned last time, was uh, that, of course, they have beaten back another HIMARS, and, but they have admitted all the losses, though. However, Russians are not buying the Ministry of Defense's lies. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, HIMARS, by the way, uh, I'm, I'm pre- keeping count. This is um, 27th destroyed HIMARS out of the 20 that Ukraine actually has. So Ukraine is now running on minus 7 HIMARSes. Of course, none of them has been actually destroyed, but, you know, just keep track. At any rate, various Telegram channels point out the fact that um, about Makivka, there's a lot of blame diverting. And it's a bit dangerous at this point. One of the channels is Dvamayor, and I thank Dmitri from War Translated about this excerpt, since, the, yeah, like I said, if I had translated this myself, oh, I probably would be awake even longer. Quote, from Dvamayora, a Telegram channel about the Makivka event, which shows that people are not as, you know, gullible as they used to be. From the point of view of information technology, the Russian Ministry of Defense uses an extremely uncomplicated lightning rod technique. Thus, after the strike in Makivka, first deputy chief of the main military political directorate of the armed forces of the Russian Federation, Lieutenant General Sergei Servyukov, made a speech. Although the army and society had no complaints about him in this situation, the negative, due to the statements about the main reasons for the incident, went in his direction. Previously, the same technique was used when Surovikin was forced to voice on camera Shoigu's proposal to leave Kherson, and Shoigu, frowning his eyebrows, was forced to agree with the suggestion of a subordinate. 
Simple one-move schemes in an attempt to save the face of the Ministry of Defense are smashed against the objective reality in the troops. Here is a report to the board that everything is going great. And here are th hundreds of thousands of military and volunteers seeing how good everything really is. Anti-crisis scenarios only work if they are really do something out of the ordinary. Systemic errors against the backdrop of a constant bo boring positive image of the wise leadership of the Ministry of Defense cause a backlash. The worst thing that is happening is a further, further decline in the level of trust in official Russian sources of information. And uh, here I'd like to mention in uh, by myself that, uh, oh boy, if, if someone is still just losing trust in official Russian sources of information, then uh, yikes. And then, obviously, this article continues with great advice how to improve everything, but nothing's going to get improved anyways. In order to correct the situation, it is necessary to actively involve the public in solving problems in the army, demonstrate the unity of the army and the people, and develop new information tools, and ruthlessly punish the perpetrators of criminal negligence. Now, obviously, this not none of this is going to happen. What is going to happen, though, is that, um, again, another thing why I'm just slapping the script together with, like, nine additions to it, an organization that no one knew about from Telegram popped out in Russia. This this time it is the widows of war. And they have in a public letter to Putin demanded that uh, mobilization be enforced and that the borders be closed and that those who have left be punished. Then, you know, all this is happening at one point. Putin's decided to take some, you know, more face in this and well, at least he's providing an imitation of action. You know, at the same time, well, propaganda is pulling out the weirdest tools ever. And, uh, well, yet in another case, why I'm up here up until super early in the morning, all night long, is an article by Nevsky Novosti, or News of Neva. So the Russian propagandists, amidst all of this, trying to kind of put some positive spin on things and, and trying to figure everything out, have pulled out an unlikely personnel. Right now, uh, there's a report, which I shared on Twitter, that a, a descendant of Nikolai I, yes, yes, the Tsar, from France, is uh, serving as a volunteer in the Russian side. And he's claiming that uh, the Russian spirit is closer to him. And his name, very French, from France, is obviously Gavriel Doroshin. Well, uh, he's French in passport, but yeah, apparently. What's interesting enough is that uh, th this attempt is extremely miserable since, well, he, he claims some nobility, but if you do, you should probably pick a country which um, isn't, isn't famous for its republics and, you know, revolutions and chopping off the heads of nobles. If he'd claim that he's, you know, from Netherlands or Sweden or UK, I'd buy this, but... Um, a guy who still claims his noble rights, arriving from France with a French passport, uh, claiming some ancestry and privileges and being interviewed by Russian monarchists. <sighs> well, you know, it, it's kind of explainable by the fact that all of the Russian Empire's elite intellectuals, so to speak, they were obsessed with France. But right now it just looks super silly. And again happening at the same time when Putin's decided to 
move on. All this, again, kind of just makes me think that we'll see a massive bloodbath pretty soon. But the important part that kind of ties into this is that my attention was drawn to something that my fellows in Lithuania, you know, country just below mine, wrote. One Andrus Kubilius, who is a uh, reporter in Russia, in Lithuanian tribute, wrote, quote, an article for Lithuanians are Russian psychological complex complexes. Now he's probably trying to do the same thing that uh, I am, in a way, at least on paper, trying to explain how Russia operates. But again, all these coincidences about everything happening right now and all this forced attention and this Russianness, because Putin's really trying to turn this into a people's war where not everyone's like, you know, not afraid to die. Yeah, that uh, caught my eye. And also he criticizes our Latvian TV station Dodge decision to, you know, revoke license for the Russian opposition channel Dodge. Uh, I mentioned that before, I won't dwell on that. But he wrote an interesting article to which I just must oppose, oppose you know. This episode might be a bit longer, but hey, I've been up for and making this from five different versions of script for eight, eight hours now. You can maybe, you know, have a bit more time to listen. I'll go through the article and then I'll just counter my arguments. Quote. Latvians had revoked the broadcast license for the Russian opposition TV channel Dodge. Before that, the channel had been expelled from Moscow by Putin. It is for Latvians the judge how this decision was legal and politically justified. Rasa Junkevich and I, well, the author, believe that this decision was neither very correct nor strategically wise. Uh, I agree with him on the fact that it wasn't strategically wise. However, it was very correct. Especially, especially since now we've found out that uh, as these journalists and media were all invited to come and, you know, understand the situation, they were invited to our KGB museum, to our occupation museum, so that these Russians would understand what being in Soviet Union actually meant to us and why we are so uppity, so to speak. And, well, they declined, and there's a lot of other things, you know. Only the loud parts go out, but still, this happened. But this author continues. The decision was also met with a lot of public reaction in Lithuania, most, most of which was the same. This is what they deserve because all are imperialists. All Russians are agents of the evil empire. The Russian liberal position has responded with a similarly angry reaction, without any shades. This made both Lithuanians and Latvians ever more furious. Well, this reaction to this Dodge incident was um, why he made this article. And where he drove himself into a massive bottle of weirdness. See, uh, this Andrius... And by the way, um, he's not a nobody, okay? I don't know him personally, but uh, he's been quoted by Maxim Katz, one of the more famous Russian liberals. So that means that a bunch of, of these people, like as many as listen, you guys listening to my show, is going to listen to that, that stuff, and, well, they're all going to buy in, justifying everything that's happening. See, he calls all this situation about how we feel about Russia psychological complexes. And here he says, quote, I will try to identify briefly those, are those of our basic attitudes. And uh, although this is the English version of the article, uh, they have grammar mistakes. And sorry, I can't do the 
I saw it was in English and I won't I won't fix them all. If there are grammar mistakes, then really I'm I'm reading you from the article as is. <sighs> I normally fix those things, but you know, I I guess that intern who tra who translated this wasn't uh, well paid or something. Mm. I will try to briefly identify those our basic attitudes, those of our basic attitudes. There is no often thing. Well, never mind. Those essential Russian complexes of ours, which have been particularly prominent in the context of the TV Deutsch story, which, in the author's opinion, are wrong. And he explains why they're wrong, or tries to. First of all, he starts with the attitude that Russia is incompatible with democracy. He states that, quote, many in Lithuania and in the West, in general, have bought into notion that Russia, because of its statehood traditions, is totally unsuited to democracy. Having inherited many state institutions from the Tatar-Mongol invasion, it has forever lived under autocracy, under czars, secretaries general or authoritarian presidents. And it has never had true parliament, true rule of law, interinstitutional checks and balances. And there he continues, it's like all this stuff. And this is why a lot of people think that democracy is impossible in Russia. And then he argues that, um, well, interestingly enough, he argues through the West part. He argues because apparently this is one of the Putin's central messages. He has adopted this image. And Putin also states, and this is his argument, according to Putin, the West simply has to adapt. Adapt to the current Russia, which means that West has merely to maintain a dialogue with Putin regardless of how he behaves. Quote, Mr. Emmanuel Macron is an example of how Western leaders are willing to accept this doctrine imposed by Putin and are eager to adapt it to adapt to it because Mr. Macron does not believe Russia can be different. The, the consequence of this is that some Western leaders are still willing to ge geopolitically sacrifice Ukraine to accommodate Putin. Moreover, it is necessary not to anger or provoke Putin with support for Ukraine. Putin and Russia are savages. They will never be different and they still have a frightening nuclear bomb. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, yeah, that's that's his point. Um, if you, if you've noticed, because because this article is gonna get quoted by New York Times and a lot of people, I just know because, oh boy, I can spot them a mile away. So his argument is that we shouldn't think that because of historical traditions, you know, Russia has literally zero republican traditions or institutions remaining because Putin has destroyed all of them, which is the main complaint about Putin. But we should still kind of hope for Russia to get better. Because otherwise we follow Putin's thing. 
uh, yeah, it, this makes no sense to me. If if I just believe put this all down down in this this position, the problem is that I can give you a counterpoint. Well, yes, this is true in modern day Russia with all their historical traditions. Yes, Russia can't be a democracy. They have no institutions for that. Why? Well, because they had none historically, because of all these reasons, and because Putin has systematically destroyed all of them because he likes this idea. Now, what, what, what this is going to lead to is um, not the fact that the West is going to come in as some sort of a savior uh, and, and build Russia up again. It's just Russia's probably going to collapse, quite likely, indeed. And, uh, well, maybe the republics that are left after can, can do such things. But uh, the author here and is just pointing another argument here. He writes, he writes that, quote, I do not believe in such arguments because I have seen many examples of, of, uh, examples of countries or nations that had no democratic experience before turning into successful democracies at the end of the 20th century. And then he gives examples of Mongolia and Taiwan and all these places. But what he misses here... And, you know, if someone quotes you this article, because this is in English and it comes, comes from these parts, so again, it will be quoted, is the fact that he mentions countries where uh, political institutions, such as, you know, legitimacy and democracy and parliament and all this, were not systematically eroded by, by their dictator. He portrays countries which, with earnstwhile effort, put into their best to make it into, into democracy. Meanwhile, in Russia, we can see what happens when there's a kleptocracy and when all these possible institutions are just destroyed. So um, this argument doesn't, doesn't hold any water. And at the same time, uh, and again, just warning you from the future positions, if you're in the United States, this might be relevant. He somehow states that we should always, always think that Russia's going to, you know, stay in one piece and all that whatnot. But, again, I don't know why should we worry about that. But uh, he continues from the point, you know, although you could easily see some Western savior complex. He continues on that Russians are, as a people are not fit for democracy. And he claims that there's a massive myth that uh, Russians are, and I quote here, dark, uh, uneducated people brainwashed by propaganda. They have no democratic instincts and never will have any. So let us stop deluding ourselves with illusions about Russia's democratic prospects. And, uh, well, basically, he just goes on and his argument is that uh, this is racist. One, well, in 1914, in the last very kind of thing, public census, 97% of Russia couldn't read. And they had a weird, weird attitude towards their serfs. And the proletariat was also a weird thing going on there. I mean... Um, it feels interesting because pro-Russia, pro sort of these Russian liberals, which are, again, going to be quoted everywhere, they use this argument that, oh, no, no, we're totally ready and we're, we're, we have everything okay. We're awesome despite our institutions being destroyed and everything. And uh, now here's the argument that everyone who says that, well, Russians aren't really used to democracy, that that's racist. Now... Besides this just being a, a not hominem, the trick here is that, well, yes, Russians as people are not fit right now. But again, if you had, 
if you had listened to my previous episodes, you know about all the propaganda machine that's happening. I, I take a special I take special attention to cover the propaganda instructions for the official media. That's been in the official news for 20 years. In this episode, I told you what what's, what Solovyov is going on about now. I mean, um, this is kind of like trying to say that hardcore Nazis are not fit for democracy, because they're not. They have been brainwashed for a lot of parts, and uh, as much as anyone who is very pro-Russian these days would like to tell you that all the... All, all the polls are fake, everything's fake. Well, yeah, people are tired of war, they're not tired of Putin. Putin still has a 75.1% approval rating. Admittedly, down from 86%, but still. And there's a lot of Russians who just won't even speak to me and, and who won't even speak to my contacts and everything because a lot of them honestly believe the fact that their West is out to get them. And how can you say that someone is fit and ready to build all institutions completely anew from scratch when there's not even a discourse about this? Let me remind you that before the United States was declared, you know, there was a ton of political philosophy going on there. People actually thought about how the state would happen and how everything was going you know, to work. In Russia, nothing like it. That's one of the reasons, because this whole idea that was as soon as Putin's got that are no institutions remaining and, and people have been like damaged with propaganda so much that they can't rebuild their institutions. That's one of the reasons that I think Russia's gonna fall apart. But I'm pretty sure that some Western magazines is gonna run for it and, and name Russians a race. Well once again evil evil racist stuff. This reminds me of a weird, unrelated thing, but uh, once you once you start using race when it's inappropriate and when it just you know when, when you ignore actual arguments when you build the, build them up on your own, yeah, that kind of that kind of devolves racism in general. When actually can when actually things can happen. His third point, by the way which is a very common one, which I also defend on my show, is the fact that he defends the claim that ordinary Russians and the opposition actually do take arms against the criminal regime. And he explains this with the fact that, well, look at this, they are suffering from the oppression and all these, all these stu- all this stuff and everything. And I agree with them here, yeah, uh, because, well, apparently we have to excuse the fact that they're not revolting because, you know, oppressive regime, people are worried about themselves. Well, yeah, most of them are, definitely. But uh, at this point, should we really care? The people who are up in arms, by the way, which he again omits, are various independence movements. I had an interesting chat with some people from Komi, which is Karelia, about how they feel about the whole Russian thing, and uh, oh boy, that's kind of interesting, you know. Another thing is that he continues on about how we shouldn't portray Russians as collectively guilty. And I agree with him here. And that that is true. However, this whole argument that whole Russians are not collectively responsible 
is twisted around by um, Russian liberals, once again doing the same thing that disturbed them and, and kind of stopped them from building a real democracy in the first place. See, Russian liberals are super happy being super elitist, and they, instead of actually helping their people to build their institutions or doing anything productive, they spend their time sitting in fancy pubs and eating at hipster places and, and telling each other how much better they are than everyone else. That's their main thing. And and this, this line of argumentation just basically means that this is going to be used as another case to show that everyone who probably remained in Russia and everyone is just evil and look at us, we're so much better instead of doing something. And his final argument is that, quote, democracy in Russia could be dangerous for us because Russia will again gain strength. Quote, many of us know that Russia, with the authoritarian Putin at its head, is getting weaker and weaker politically, economically, and technologically. Putin also understands this, which is one of the main reasons for aggression. Blah, blah, blah. And then he goes on about how a lot of people kind of don't want to see strong democratic Russia and all that whatnot. Because Russia could get strong and that might be a, might be a threat to us. Well, then I'll repeat a thing that I've said many, many times over. If, if Russia would be a strong democratic country, then we would have less U.S. influence. We had like a counterweight. And we'd be, I don't know, less Americanized culturally, I suppose. Strong democratic Russia would be the benefit for all of Europe. 100%. Problem is that I don't believe it. Now, you might again wonder why I'm quoting this whole thing. It's just that... This guy's in Lithuania and he's now explaining the good Russians to Westerners. The problem is he omits so much and uh, I'm pretty sure I'll find some of these in Kremlin's instructions. All this new thing is kind of created to basically show that Russia's the victim here and that the good Russian liberals are, are you know, non, not related to all this no matter how much their whole salaries and money is, is tied into a whole tied into this whole war making machine. This is this is another attempt of um, patting the Russians who escaped from Russia on the head and saying, You're doing fine, let's make you feel better. Meanwhile, I don't know. I've I've been watching them every day, all day long. And some of them actually do help uh, Russia and some of them are great, like Michael Maki, which I truly respect. He did a lot of great things and, well, uh, he's not on my show because he doesn't speak English. And I am not bothering in this very stressful stressful period to do any uh, kind of voiceovers. But Mikhail Kotz, yeah, you know, seems that every second episode is uh, of his is to make Russians feel better about themselves because they're too depressed. And once again, you know, I can return to my point about why they're why they will most likely collapse and instead of build the strong democracy because of all of this wishful thinking. What do you expect if instead of, you know, trying to focus on what's going to happen after Putin and how are they going to do elections? What's happening now is some sort of a blame game where they, where all they're trying to do is like, look, is like to try to tell you, look, we didn't start this war. We're awesome and nice and, and, and we're great. You know, self, uh, self-absorbed reasoning once again. And at this point, I don't know. These guys are the same people who who 
claim that I'm weird for thinking that Russia is probably going to collapse. But I still stand by my opinion. And once again, information sources tell me that this article is probably going to appear in some form or another, probably quoted in Western media. In case of whatever, well, at least now you know the basic stuff. Because, for one, it is really, really hard to build a democracy whose institutions have been totally destroyed. And especially those people who are, at least on paper, interested in building those institutions, if they are all busy, you know, patting on the head and uh, ordering and paying for articles, we just state, no, no, you're okay, and Russia's great, and Russia's going to be awesome and nice all over again, and nothing's going to change, instead of actually doing something... Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. No matter how much they would like it otherwise. It's just that it reminds me of the whole shock situation when, again, I guess it was yesterday or something. Again, haven't slept. Sorry for the weirdness. Ukrainian authorities stated that in, in case of whatever, if Russia wouldn't you know, surrender, if once they're pushed out, they do not exclude the, op the the option of actually moving in into Russian territory because the war needs to be finished. And the outrage that this caused, oh boy. See, this is the reason, to put this into context, why everything's kind of turning around and getting serious. Putin's taking the city, has given out instructions, walk working through various channels to remain in power. And meanwhile, the opposition to Putin, well... They are super busy about patting, with patting themselves on the head and trying to prove to everyone that they're the good guys and they're not guilty of anything. Yeah, sure, they're not. But um, if they would actually do something, that'd be nice too. And I really don't know. I, I've spoken to too many Ukrainians and over here in Latvia. It's really hard to, you know, believe that some of them are sincere. Especially since these Russian liberals, they've been always looking down on anything. And I've asked this Maxim Katz, who was one of those people to come onto my show, but, um, well, he, um, he, has, he has more downloads than I have, you know, on YouTube, people watching on YouTube. And, um, well, he apparently doesn't want to come because of this. It's just... It's just weird, interesting study, maybe. This together with Putin's speech and, and how how we have more deaths and everything. Yeah, just weird. Now we just have to wait until the mobilization starts and, well, hope for the best and send Ukraine some more, more weapons. After all, they're, they're still fighting with minus seven HIMARS, obviously, because 27 of them were destroyed. But yeah, sorry for for the for the weird mess. Uh, sorry about the last article part. It's just that I really had to comment on this because, oh boy, if someone would read this without context, he would think that you know everything's nice and dandy, where that it really isn't. So, had to put that one in. But yeah, that's it for today. I have to go out of my house now because I'm moving to a bit bigger apartment. I'm going to have multiple rooms and uh, a place for, for a studio, like a tiny little room there. Uh, I can afford 
to, to rent a bit more expensive place. Uh, 450 euros plus bills, more expensive. Really cheap. I mean, that's a good deal. I got a three-room uh, three apartment in the city center for, for that money. Which, you know, just, just to count that uh, not wasting your money, patrons. By the way, thank you, patrons. And uh, if you want to also support the show and help me survive a bit longer so that I can cover all these news and everything, uh, please consider becoming our patron on patreon.com slash border. Or if you want to give us a one-time donation, then you know you can go to theeasternborder.lv. You can also just listen to all the episodes without ads there and just click the donate button there. We're, we're figuring out how and when we're going to go back to Ukraine because this whole not being able to go to Bakhmut kind of pushed me out of everything, but we're working on it. But yeah, oh boy. It's just that sometimes when I just read some silliness and some arguments which are just wrong in my opinion just can't keep shut sorry about that at any rate and remember happiness is mandatory and please unlike myself you you do get some sleep because let me tell you being up all night i'm 33 at this point well hadn't been awake all night for a long time already and now i have to go and move because the internet person is coming in Anyway, до свидания. And um, stay in touch. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.